Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of a Nation on iTunes, Google Play, and on Sojo.net. For more news, resources, and reflections about our current public health crisis, visit Sojo.net slash coronavirus. Today, I am delighted to be speaking with Valerie Kaur about the revolutionary love that is needed to address the viruses of racism and COVID-19 in this country and around the world. Valerie Kaur is a sick American civil rights activist, lawyer, filmmaker, innovator, and founder of the Revolutionary Love Project. How's that for a mission? She has won national acclaim for her story-based advocacy helping to win policy change on issues ranging from hate crimes to digital freedom. Her speeches have reached millions worldwide and inspired a movement to reclaim love as a force for justice. Say it again, to reclaim love as a force for justice. Valerie's new book, See No Stranger, a memoir and manifesto of revolutionary love, expands on her blockbuster TED Talk and is available now on seenostranger.com. Valerie and I have known each other for a while and follow each other's work closely and carefully. Valerie, welcome to the Soul of a Nation. I am so excited to have you and have this time to talk. I am so grateful to be with you, Jim. Thank you. So, Valerie, um, how is your spirit? How is your spirit these days? In this moment, I... Am present. I am present. The last few weeks, I have cycled through so much grief and rage and fatigue and fear, and then glimmers of hope rising in my body that all I can be is present to whatever is immediately in front of me and to the emotions that are coursing through me. Um, and right now, Jim, to be present with you and have this moment to step out of the rush of advocacy to reflect means that I am present to my gratitude. Um, I'm speaking to you from my bedroom closet, <laughs> the only place where my children can find me in the house. They're one and five. They're with my husband. Oh, and I can my. show up to the work. Um, so it's been a lot. And I, I think because it's been so intense uh, to, to be a mother in this time, to be a woman of color in this time, to be an accomplice, an ally in this time, and to be an activist in this time, and to, and to have love on the, on the tip of my tongue and on the top of my heart, it's been so intense and so much that um, I find that I am safest and bravest when I am in the present moment. We met many years ago in the context of a course, a conversation for many weeks about faith and public life. And you have been bringing that faith to public life ever since. So I, I love those early conversations and the way you've been talking ever since. Um, oh, so, Jim, that I was a graduate student. I was in divinity were. school <laughs> auditing your class. And I remember seeing you as someone who had blazed a path so that the rest of us could 
draw from our own faith traditions and walk the path of love and justice. So to be journeying with you now as a Sikh sister, it's, you know, I just, that also brings me just so much gratitude. Well, you say in the introduction to your new book, See No Stranger, you write that the book is about how, I love this, you just said this, how to labor with joy. As you were pregnant with your daughter named Ananda, who was outside your your uh, be- bedroom closet studio <laughs> at the moment, yes. that you you were writing when you were pregnant with Ananda, meaning joy. The word her name means joy. Yes, yes, it it means joy in Sanskrit. And oh, Jim, I wrote this book as an act of survival, you know, for myself and really for her. Um, it was in the 2016 presidential election season when hate violence was just skyrocketing. And here I I had been an activist for so many years since September 11th. Um, I had become a a lawyer and a filmmaker and an organizer. And I had operated on this faith that all the advocacy we were doing was making the nation safer for the next generation, for our children. And here um, with this president taking power it felt like, what was it all for? Uh, if my children are growing up in a nation more dangerous for them, brown children with long hair, my son may wear a turban as part of his faith. If it's more dangerous for him than it was for me or even for my grandfather when he arrived a century ago, what was it all for? So I had this existential crisis and I was given a gift that women, few women who are mothers and activists have. I, uh, I was given time and space to read and to think and to write. I was given a room of of my own (laughs) and it was like a lifeline, this book advance. And so I took my family out of the country and we sat in the rainforest for a year, uh, lived in the rainforest. And Jim, the rainforest was like a womb. It was like warm and wet and safe and generative. And I could sit at my desk as the mist poured through the valley and just pour through the stories of my life. And I read everything. I I kept a journal since I was seven years old. So I read everything that I had written since I was seven. (laughs) I was pouring through my life as if it was some kind of text that would give me answers. And as I was reading my own life, I was reading the stories and scriptures of my sick ancestors. And then I was reading about social movements of the past. And I was looking for the answer. How, How do we last? How do we birth a new nation when the labor feels ongoing, when it feels relentless, when it feels so dark and hard and violent. And the answer just emerged from the pages. This call to revolutionary love, revolutionary love to be brave enough to see no stranger, to grieve and rage and fight for one another, even in the fires of injustice, even when it gets this hard. I I began to see revolutionary love as the way that we birth a new nation, a new world, and also the way that we last. And I said, well, okay, if, if love is not just a rush of feeling, you know, if love the way our spiritual teachers and social reformers and our caregivers, any kind of caregiver knows that love <laughs> is more than a rush of feeling. Love is sweet labor. It's it's fierce and it's bloody and it's imperfect and life-giving. And when we labor for someone, we love them by laboring for them, then we know that love can be modeled, love can be taught, love can be practiced. So I, I compiled a team of researchers from the fields of ethics and neuroscience and conflict resolution and 
I pulled from their research in order and, and aligned with my own lived experience to come to these 10 core practices of revolutionary love. And Jim, this is the book. This is the offering. Um, folks are calling it the new nonviolence. How do we anchor our lives and our movements for justice in love, in real concrete practice? Well, I want to get to those 10 core practices, but you mentioned the election. And I've always been struck by the question that you posed right after Trump's election, literally at a religious watch night service on New Year's Eve. There's often those faith gatherings, and you were there among others. And what you said that night really echoed around the world. You said this, what if this darkness in our nation is not only the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb? What did you mean by that then, and what is that now meaning for you now? You know, in, in birthing labor, there is the final stage of labor that is the most painful and fiery stage. And the, the body expands to 10 centimeters. The contractions come so fast, there's barely time to breathe. And I remember when I was in this stage, when I was first laboring with my son, I turned to my mother and I said, I can't. I can't. The, the midwife was saying, breathe and push. And I just, I couldn't. <laughs> and my mother was whispering to me, you are brave. You are brave. And she was whispering my grandfather's prayer, the hot winds cannot touch you. And in that moment, I remember seeing my mother behind, behind me and her mother behind her and her mother behind her and all of the women who had pushed through the fire before me. I took a breath and I pushed and my son was born. And it occurred to me that that moment, that breathless moment that feels like dying, when you, the voice in you says, I can't, is precisely the moment where you must summon up your deepest courage with your ancestors at your back in order to breathe and push and have faith that there might be something new on the other side of this. And that was the moment I felt myself in when this president took power and hate violence were just exploding around us. It was my I can't moment. <laughs> and I needed to breathe. I needed to breathe before I could push. And so that was me taking this time away to think and read and write and produce this book so I could come back and be able to push again. And I, I, think, I think, Jim, that this moment, in this moment, in the midst of a global pandemic, in the midst of um, a national uprising that is centering Black lives like never before, when the streets turn into battlefields and our president behaves like a dictator and we're feeling these glimmers of hope and possibility and change among the institutions of power and yet we don't know what tomorrow will bring. It feels, it's such a breathless moment. And there are probably, there are moments when I hear that voice in me that, again that says, I can't. And that's when I just need to summon the wisdom of the midwife, breathe and then push and then breathe again. She doesn't say breathe once and push the rest of the way, right? She says breathe and push and breathe again. So this question, is this the darkness of the tomb or the darkness of the womb? It is a lie for me right now. And I, my answer these days is that it is, it is both. It is both that there is real grief and suffering and death, when we've lost 110,000 people in this country, and disproportionately black people, when we've lost George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, and Nina Pop and Tony McDade, when we've lost our sisters and brothers to 
hate violence and state violence, and we cannot bring them back. It is, it is the darkness of the tomb. And, and at the same time, now more than ever before, I see glimpses of the nation that is longing to be born. The America that we have long labored for. And that's what gives me energy and courage to be present yeah. <laughs> and to take the breath and to make the next push each hour, each day. So really breathing and pushing, it's not so much a strategy, but a spiritual disciplines. Yes, it's a way of moving through the world. Yeah. Yes, you know, and I, I, I want to say that I, I, when, when we hear people say soldier on or be a warrior for justice, we know what that means. War metaphors are useful in um, calling forth the bravery it takes to fight the good fight. And I, I think we need those metaphors now as so many of us are, are rising up and figuring out what our role is in this fight. But birthing metaphors, they point to the kind of courage and the kind of stamina that's required to create something new. The labor of making a life or raising a family or building a movement or birthing a new nation, that requires a certain um, spiritual uh, rhythm and, and nourishment and stamina <laughs> because the labor is long and we don't go to battle alone. We don't give birth alone. We need one another in this labor. And so that's why I, I find myself going back and forth between calling on my warrior tradition as a Sikh American. Mm -hmm. You know, we come from a tradition of warrior sages, Sant Sapai with sword and shield in hand. How do we fight the good fight? But I also find myself calling upon the, these birthing metaphors for for breathing and pushing together so that we may be midwives to one another in this time of great transition. And your book title speaks to what you're just now speaking of, but how we see each other, because there's a, there's a spirituality to social change, not just to politics. Your book says, see no stranger, see no stranger. And as you and I have talked before, when I was a kid to my little church as a teenager and got involved in the movements of my time, there was very much of politics and struggle and confrontation and, and strategy. There was this text from the 20th the chapter of the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus says, I was hungry, it was me. <laughs> I was thirsty, I was naked, sick, a stranger, in prison. Where were you? And people said, we didn't know it was you. He says, yeah, as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. And when I read that as an activist in the student movement, uh, I realized that was more radical than anything I was reading in Ho Chi Minh, Karl Marx, and Che Guevara. This was a much deeper, radical kind of message, and it brought me back to uh, a church that really wasn't preaching that text, for sure, and it became one of our founding texts. But it, it, that, that's, what's the spirituality of this change that we needed? That's what your book title, See No Stranger, what does it mean for us to look at the world, the polarized world, so much polarized now. And as you say, see no stranger. That's a powerful spiritual message that does make political change. Oh, Jim, this was the truth that was uttered by Guru Nanak, the founder of the Sikh faith. Um, so if you are a Sikh uh, who picks up my book, see no stranger sounds to you like love thy neighbor. <laughs> It is so inscribed in our hearts. 
Um, the story goes, when I was a little girl, my grandfather would tell me the story of Guru Nanak. It was always my favorite story, our origin story. And it's the story of this this man named Nanak who lived, you know, 500 some years ago in Punjab. And he was so distraught by the violence and injustice around him that he disappeared by a river for three days. And people thought he was a dead man. People thought he was a drowned man. But he emerged on the third day, having been wonderstruck in this gorgeous revelation. And he had this, these words on, on his lips, Ikkum God, the oneness of humanity, the oneness of the world. There is no, I see no stranger, I see no enemy. And Guru Nanak began to sing a song of love that, that we could look upon the face of anyone around us and say, you are a part of me I do not yet know. You are a part of me I do not yet know. Mm. And my grandfather would say, oh, but love is dangerous business. <laughs> <laughs> love is, that's a dangerous kind of love. In America, they say, I love you, I love you, I love you. No, all talk, no action, he would say. <laughs> he said, because if I see you and I choose to love you as my own sister, my own brother, my own sibling, then I must gr- let your pain into my heart, your grief into my heart. And I, I, I must fight for you when you are in harm's way in the face of injustice. And so that's how Sikhs became a warrior people. With sword and shield in hand, we were taught to face the fires of this world with a warrior's heart and a sage's eyes to be Santh Sapai, warrior sages for a new time. And, and so my contribution to the way that we're talking about race and justice and revolution in America is to offer up the Sikh perspective of what it really means to practice revolutionary love your quote here in the in the in the occurrence is so powerful to me the ideal in the sick faith has always been that the warrior fights and the saint loves hence a revolutionary love i love that pairing of those two i think i'm and this is me talking to you jim because i'm exploring this idea and i haven't yet made up my mind about it (laughs) is is love always revolutionary um when when we think about Jesus' call to love our neighbor as ourself, or Abraham's decision to open his tent to all, or Buddha to have compassion for all, or Muhammad to take in the orphan, or Mirabai in the Hindu tradition to love without limit. When we love without limit, then it is revolutionary, because that means we are loving beyond what evolution requires, that we are loving others who don't look like us, even our opponents. And, and ourselves, who we too often neglect. And so, yes, I, I believe that when we are um, brave enough to love beyond what uh, is required of us, uh, then it, it becomes a force for interior and political and social and cultural and spiritual change. Indeed, and you're one of those people who wants to take faith or spirituality to the streets. Um, uh, and you wrote an essay from your website on June 2nd, in the midst of all of this uh, protest, engaging, flooding over our streets. You wrote to those who were feeling anger from the systemic racism made plain, the recent murders of those you mentioned a few moments ago. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Amon Arbery, and the list, as you and I know, goes on and on and on. Here's what you said. Honor your rage, 
For too long, people of color and women have been told suppress, to suppress their rage in the name of love. But our rage carries essential information. It returns us to our body's ability to fight for our lives and the lives of others. Say what you mean by that. As a South Asian American woman, I was always taught to be ashamed of my rage, to to suppress my rage, to be a good girl, to be polite, to not make waves, to not show my teeth. And it really wasn't until I found the courage, and I, I tell this story in the book, um, it, re- it really wasn't until I found the courage to break my own silence around a sexual assault in my youth that I began to tap into rage as this vital life force that returns us to our ability to fight for one another and for fight for what matters. I remember it was my mother watching my mother and the fury in her eyes and the, and the clench in her fist and the, um, the pitch in her voice when she told uh, their family members who said, no, I, she shouldn't break her silence. And she was like, no, for too long have women been silent in our, in our community, not my daughter. She will, she will be free. And I, I learned shortly after that, Jim, that um, rage is, is the biological force that protects that which is love, that neurobiologist called oxytocin the love hormone. And in mammals, oxytocin, when it rushes through the body, it, it reduces aggression for, for, for mothers, ex- in the, except for one instance, when their babies are threatened. When babies are threatened, oxytocin actually increases aggression to protect the, the mother's young. So I think about rage as like, no, no, rage is not the opposite of love. Rage is the force that protects that which is loved. And right now we are seeing a, a revolution in our streets of thousands and thousands of people, not just our black sisters and brothers and siblings, but non-black people of color and white allies standing in the street together to say, no, we, we are not only grieving with you, our grief is laced with rage because your deaths were preventable. And we're going to stand with you with that mother love, that, that maternal love, that, that divine rage to say no more, not in our name. And so I, I believe, in, and this is what I talk about a lot in the book, is that a way to work with our rage is to be in relationship with it, that the solution is not to suppress it or to let it explode out in the streets where it might harm others or ourselves. Our solution is to engage it, to release it in safe containers, to harness it for, for creative and, and disciplined action in the world. And I think that's what we are seeing now with this revolution rooted in love, that there is a role for grief, there is a role for rage, just as, as there is a role for holding fast to one another, one another and breathing and, and pushing through the labor. It's very powerful when you say, but our rage carries essential information. That's very, that would cause people to, to really reflect. What does it mean that rage carries essential information that we need? I love the way you put that. It was really Black feminists who taught me about this. It was Audre Lorde who said, anger is loaded with information and energy. Mm -hmm. Focused with precision, it can become a powerful source of energy serving progress and change. So the goal is to listen to its rhythm, to tend to the rage within us as a symphony. 
And we we can see the information that our rage gives us just thinking about the stories that we've inherited. You know, we think about rage as not part of Jesus's message, but think about the fury of Jesus when he overturned the tables of the money changers in the oh, temple. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or the divine mother Kali in the in the Hindu tradition, the divine rage of her was not for vengeance, but to reorder the world for justice. And that's it. Our rage carries information about what matters to us and what we might be willing to fight for, what we might even be willing to risk our lives for. It wasn't until my son was placed on my chest that I understood the depth of that possibility in me, that I, that I would be willing to give my life for him. And it wasn't until my mother stood up for me that I realized that, oh, she would be, really, she would be willing to give up everything for me. When we tap into our rage, we tap into our deepest capacity to fight for what we know is, is, is just. So when people are watching, as we all are every day, it's been now 16 days in the streets and more and more it grows, uh, people are often trying to figure out what's the relationship. They, they see and feel the rage and yet they see the power of love and they often think, well, it's either one or the other. It's either rage or love and all the simplistic conversations about violence, no breaking windows and burning stores isn't, uh, isn't revolutionary love. But it's almost like they're evaluating demonstrations by how angry they are or not. And you're saying, no, if you want to understand what you're seeing on the streets, uh, and what your book talks about is what is the relationship between rage and revolutionary love? I think it goes back to this problem with how we talk about love in America mm -hmm. that we primarily have as our reference romantic love. That is it's a rush of feeling, the rush of that oxytocin, for example. And just you remember that moment when my son was placed on my chest? I was feeling the oxytocin. I was feeling that rush. I was sobbing and shaking. I was falling in love. It was happening to me. And in the meantime, my mother was opening her bag and taking out her doll and Joel and getting ready to feed me, <laughs> like feeding her baby as I was feeding mine, that she had never stopped laboring for me from my birth to my son's birth. And when we start to think about love as a form of labor, then it engages all of the emotions. Joy is the gift of love. Grief is the price of love. Anger is the force that protects that which is loved. And in this moment, each of us have, I believe, a different role in the labor of revolutionary love. That there are those, our black sisters and brothers and siblings, I think, to be able to honor and protect their rage, to be in relationship with their rage, to, to work with it so that it becomes safe for themselves and for others and to decide how to channel it into the world like that. That is their task. That's their primarily act of, primary act of revolutionary love. But for those of us who not just want to be allies, but want to be accomplices, taking from the indigenous tradition, who actually want to conspire to break these chains of oppression, perhaps it is our job to make others understand that rage that they may not be able to understand. And I, I think I think about Judith Butler saying, you know, rather than taming public expressions of moral outrage, perhaps it is up to the rest of us to train our ears to, quote, hear beyond hearing, 
so that we may discern the truth of the pain of injustice and confront our own complicity and responsibility. And, and love really is the fierce protection of those that we care about. It's a fierce protection. And often, uh, you know, uh, black people don't feel like anybody wants to protect them and when they see when they see this this man who whose life is being is being squeezed out of him who is protecting him who is and unless we as white people in particular have this commitment to protect to protect those who are under attack uh, but love is fiercely protects fiercely protects those who are being attacked and, and are vulnerable. And I think uh, your book is going to be crucial coming out at this point. And without, I'm not going to go through the whole book because I want them to read it, but give us a little, a little sense, a little uh, tease us a bit with your um, 10 core practices. I love that phrase. So don't go through them all in detail because they should read the book, read the book, <laughs> you know, go to the streets and come home and read the book. But what are the, the, just naming some of those, tease us a bit, those 10 core practices that you, that you outline in your book. Yes. Well, you know, f- folks have been calling this framework for revolutionary love the new nonviolence, a way to show up in nonviolent revolution in a way that honors our emotions and channels those emotions. And so the 10 core practices reflect that kind of movement. So the, the first is like, how do we love others? And the core practices there are wonder, to wonder about those we don't know, grieve, to have the bravery to grieve with those we don't know, and to fight, to fight alongside those we don't know for justice. Then how do we love our opponents? And the core practices there are rage to really honor and process our rage when we are hurt by our opponents. And then if we are safe enough, the next practice is to listen, to draw close to those who hurt us and see them not as monsters, but as human beings who are wounded, who are blinded, who are um, have their own form of suffering that's not equivalent to ours. But once we're able to see them not as monsters, but as people, once we're able to see their humanity, then we're able to gain information about the conditions that drove them, that drive them to hurt us. And we fight smarter. We fight more strategically. And so then the next practice there is to reimagine, to move from resistance to reimagining the institutions of power that order this world. And then finally, how do we love ourselves? And the practices there, we've been talking about it. Breathe. How you? How are you breathing every day? Pushing. How do we push into our own discomfort to grow ourselves, to show up even more? Transition. How do we transition ourselves as the nation is transitioning? And then final, finally, the 10th sneaky practice, <laughs> Jim, the practice that sustains all the rest is joy. I find that when we labor in love, we labor in joy, that the labor is not only a means, it becomes an end in itself. So joy, joy returns us to everything that is good and beautiful and worth fighting for. So how are you protecting your joy every day, even in the midst of this painful labor? For a lot of people around the world, they might have first heard of you and your name because of this this moment in a, what was a prayer service, a watch night service, a religious service. And you asked if this darkness in our nation is only the darkness of a tomb of, of death all around us, or whether it is the darkness of the womb, breaking new life, not easily, not quickly, 
uh, not without cost or risk or pain, uh, not without suffering, but but whether there's a birthing going on in the darkness. And so, so that was at a prayer service. Uh, and you and I remember NPR picked up your quote, and I I heard on NPR this quote. So I wonder um, uh, in this conversation, which has been delightful for me again. Uh, I wonder if you could, cl- in closing, just just uh, share a prayer uh, with, with with us, with those listening who are people of many faiths, uh, some no faith at all. Uh, I had a conversation with some of the Sojourner supporters today in the middle of all of our work around voter protection and the rest, uh, protecting black votes and black lives in the street. And uh, one of them on the phone, she she says, I'm an agnostic on my best days, <laughs> and yet she supports our work. So people are listening from all kinds of faiths or no faith at all. So, so Valerie, I love the practices. I love. The, is, is there kind of a you know final word, uh, a gem, a benediction that you want to leave with us about how we need to pay attention and listen and learn in days like these? When I was a little girl, I had Dr. King's voice in my ear that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And so I had in my mind this like straight line of linear progress that my grandfather came to America a century ago and sacrificed so that I could benefit and be free and then my children would have more freedom and so on. And And that image of history just had to shatter. It began to shatter for me after September 11th and the hate violence that followed. And then it really shattered upon the 2016 election season. And in in the midst of this pandemic and the state, it's really shattering now. And I thought if we have this linear view of history, then we are sliding back into darkness. But if we think about the story of America as one long labor, then we have a different view progress during birthing labor is cyclical, not linear. And every turn through the cycle gets us a little bit closer to what is being born. And so I think about this moment. I think about how this moment feels like 1968 and how this moment feels like 1992. And yet in this moment, there are more of us now in the labor than there were in those previous moments that And then we turn through the cycle. We have pushed to open up a little bit more equality and justice than there were than there was before. And and Jim, I don't know how many more turns through the cycle it's going to take. I don't know. (laughs) I feel like hope is a feeling that waxes and wanes, and what matters is having the, the the bravery to show up to the labor anyway. You know, what matters is the work that your hands do. And I think about how the body in labor contains memories of all those previous cycles. And so we, too, carry embodied knowledge of how our ancestors labored. We know how to do this. We know how to rise up in revolutionary love. We know how to wonder and grieve and rage and fight. We know how to listen and reimagine. We just have to have the audacity to keep ourselves in this long labor and to anchor ourselves in love every day, every moment, no matter how dark it gets. And so I offer you a prayer that my mother gave me on the birthing table, that my grandfather gave me when I was a little girl, in my I can't moments, in my hopeless moments, in my, oh, it's too dark, I can't show up moments. It is this prayer that was 
the secret to my grandfather's bravery, his fearlessness that I want to give to you. Tati vaunalagi, bad brahm shanai, jogit hamare ramkar, dukhlage na pai, satkarpura petya, jin bant banahi, ram na mokhdiya, ekalivlai, rakleotin rakhanhar, sabyar matai, ko nane kirpa pe, prape sahai. The hot winds cannot touch you. The hot winds cannot touch you. You are shielded by love. Vaikuruji ka khalsa, Vaikuruji ki fateh. The beloved community belongs to divine oneness, and so does all that it achieves. Amen. <laughs> amen, amen, amen. And all the people said amen. Uh, thank you, Valerie. Thank you for joining us today in the middle of all that's going on. How we can understand the darkness is not just the darkness of a tomb that we often feel, but the darkness of the womb, which you have, which you have opened up for us so powerfully today. So thank you again. To hear more from Valerie Kaur, follow her on Twitter at Valerie Kaur and check out her new book, See No Stranger at seenostranger.com. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter, if you'd like, at Jim Wallace. Blessings to all of you for the Soul of the Nation.